Uh, good morning. Uh, like Hope, uh, who's been on, who is on sabbatical, and myself, who's just coming off sabbatical, I highly endorse and really affirm this time for Garrett and for the life of our church. So we're going to look at the, the Bible now, and I'm going to read from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, and we'll start in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and praise you, Father. And thank you for your word. And I pray that you bless this time as we think about it, Lord. Have your hand upon us. Speak to our hearts that which we need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2007, uh, the Washington Post, or the magazine in particular, did this really interesting experiment. Uh, in uh, Joshua Bell, who was a uh, concert pianist, you know, he's ch you know, child virtu you know, virtuoso violinist, was doing a concert, you know, one of these $100 a seat concert in D.C. And they wondered, what would happen if you took that same concert that's in that context in this big hall with all these people listening, what would happen if you went and stuck them in the subway? You know, just as an experiment, right? Just put them in the subway and see what happened, you know, and, and they said, well, you, and, and then they want to make the right kind of subway. You know, it's, it's in the metro in D.C. They said, what's the people who would most appreciate classical music? You know, so you at least have that as a constant. And so they put him in, you know, the center of Washington life, and he went there and he, uh, you know, put on his same guy, put on his cap, put his thing, sat next to a garbage can, and began to play there with his incredible acoustics. Now, people theorized what would happen. You know, some said, well, you know, people are going to work and stuff, but, I mean, people here, this is like one of the you know, best violinists in the world, you know, right there in front of them. You know, there'll be a crowd, you know. So that was kind of the idea. So he, he goes there, and by the way, he had took a, a, a taxi from his hotel three blocks away, and the reason he did that was to preserve his violin, which was from 1713, $3.5 million Stradivarius. You know, so you can, you can argue one of the finest instruments in the history of man created. 
right there in the subway. And so he sets up there, puts on his baseball cap, opens up his little thing, throws a couple bucks in there, you know, to kind of feed to feed the thing as anyone wise does. And he begins to play. It's got amazing acoustics, by the way. You know, really beautiful acoustics in the subway. So what happened? So for the first um, three and a half minutes, uh, absolutely nothing. And then finally, one person is a quick little double take and keeps going. At seven minutes, one person leaned against a wall for a bit. And over the course of 45 minutes, in all, only seven people even stopped whatsoever. And he earned $32. It's pretty good. Pretty good for a concert pianist. So basically what happened was like absolutely nothing. The way he describes it, he goes, it was a strange feeling that people were actually uh, ignoring me. At a music hall, I'll get upset if someone coughs or if someone's cell phone goes off, but here my expectations quickly diminished. I started to appreciate any acknowledgement. Even a slight glance up, I was oddly grateful when someone threw in a dollar instead of change. This from a man whose talents can command $1,000 a minute. He said the awkward times, he calls them, is what happens right after each piece ends. Nothing. The music stops. The same people who hadn't noticed him playing don't notice when he's finished. No applause, no acknowledgement. Sabelle just saws out a small, nervous chord, the embarrassed musician's equivalent of, er, okay, moving right along, and begins the next piece. So here was a guy doing the, uh, you know, essentially playing what he would do in this incredible concert venue with this incredible instrument and put in the midst of a context where no one even noticed or saw or cared. Do you realize that's actually what God calls us to do and how we're supposed to live? You know, we're going to be looking at this passage in 2 Corinthians 4, and he talks about how we are to live, in essentially, essentially, for this unseen world, in the midst of a seen world that doesn't realize it. So we're going to talk about what do we mean by that? What do, what do, what do we mean by Paul talking that, that that is the nature of our life there? And then practically, what does that actually look like? So looking at 1 uh, Corinthians 4, everyone's just like stopping and going, huh? So maybe let's just let you think about it for a moment before I start preaching. It's really interesting. Everyone goes, ah, because it really is like that life. You know, as, uh, as um, I can't, come on, there you go. So he begins this passage by saying, God, let, as God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is, a, in, in, in contrast, just a couple verses before he said, you know, the unbelievers are blinded to this. But something amazing happened inside of our hearts. Remember, light is the great metaphor in Scripture, right? Light is the presence of God. Light is the revelation of God. There's a sense in which the world is dark, and the way that light lights it up when we can see is the way in which God's, the knowledge of God and God's revelation lights up the world to us. We're blind, and then we see. And he says it's this amazing, mysterious thing that happens in your heart as you suddenly realize, wow, the glory of God, this creation. Jesus, you know, has the glory of God on his face. He is God in the flesh. He says, this is an amazing gift. It's an incredible thing that's happened to us. I remember myself, you know, I, I, go, go, I went from so cleanly from absolute darkness and wandering around this world, no idea, to suddenly going, oh, look at this world. Look at, you know, uh, Jesus is really 
this is true, this is real, and it's a mystery. I sometimes wonder, I don't know about your prayer life, sometimes I write and go, gosh, God, how do I believe this? And why do I believe it with all my heart? Why do I see the world through those lenses? It's an incredible gift. But he says, here's the great irony, that enormous gift, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And clay's like, jars of clay, by the way, is like the dis disposable plastics of the ancient world. They really are. This is, they were, they were plentiful, they were all over the place, they broke constantly, they were kind of, you know, everyone would fashion these little clay stuff and they would break. And he goes, that's what, our, that's what we're like. You know, th those are our bodies, that's this life we're in. You know, this incredible value, but we're like in these jars of clay. So you have this strange irony, right? In one sense, this thing of incredible worth you know, has, has, you know, God's flashed into our hearts that we can see the glory of God. And yet, we work so pathetically, don't we? I mean, I could, I could at one point be preaching up here a sermon about how God has changed my life, and within minutes, I can go get angry at the stupidest thing and say something I wish I hadn't said to somebody. I'm like, how is that happening? Why does that happen? You know, why do our bodies break down? Why do these, you know, we can you know, getting up so groggy and stuff, or get ill or sick, and we're so frail and fragile, and there's so many injustices in the world. It's like, it's this crazy thing. How do both these things exist, and why? And he goes on and says, you know, we have this in treasures of, we have this treasure in jars of clay to do what? To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's a very interesting way in which God uniquely is revealed and seen and understood by nature of our weakness. The fact that we can't do it ourselves is what amplifies and helps us see that it's God who's at work. Have you seen that? At your weakest points is the part where you really go, because whenever you're strong, you give credit to God because you feel like what a great partner you are to God. You know, God, wasn't I helpful to you? You know, it's in your times of absolute weakness. I can tell you, like, you know, when I do this kind of job, there's times, it's the times when I go up there and I don't even know what I'm, you know, I just, I feel tired or I feel fatigued, I feel disorganized, I don't know what I'm going to say. And it's those moments when I think, wow, when it comes out and I think, and, and those are always the ones where people are actually most impacted, you know, and, I, and, and it's easy because you're like, wow, thank you, Lord, because I can give all the glory to you. I want to give all the glory to him every time I speak, but naturally you take credit, don't you? And not just when you're speaking, but this is in all of your life, right? It's your times when your medical thing, you get to your last thing, and you're just praying for God's help. It's not until it gets to the point of almost desperation that you can clearly see it's him. When it happens short of that, we tend to take it. So it's actually there's a unique thing in which God wants to receive the glory and see it. That the life of Jesus, as he says, becomes manifest. Right? The death of Jesus and the life of Jesus becomes manifest in our weakness. And so here you have these two things, our weakness and the power of God working hand in hand right next to each other. And that's when Paul goes on, he says, so therefore we're, we're hard pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So at the very point, the brokenness, the weakness, the clayness of our life is sitting right here, yet the power of God is perpetually working right in the middle of it. And you can see his sustaining power. And he goes, this is so that, again, so you, God glorifies himself and shows his name through that. Now, it's a mysterious, you know, but a mystery. Why does God do it this way? You know, it's hard, hard to see, but that's part of the mystery of it. You can ask on Tuesday night if we want to explore that a bit more. 
you know, why, why, you know, just some people don't see it. Some do see it. How does this happen? Why does God allow the brokenness? It's, it's like one of the biggest questions people have is to, you know, the, you know, if God's real, why is there all this suffering in the world? These kind of, these are the kind of questions which the Bible's not embarrassed about. So, oh, did this stop working on me? It did. And, and he goes on to talk about a little bit more about the nature of the promise and the hope that we have as a result of it. He says, you know, we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Don't do that. Sorry about that. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden. Did it just keep flipping back? Well, what it says. <laughs> and it's making an analogy to the tabernacle in the wilderness. You know that we're in this, is it up there now? Okay. Not here. While we're in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It's okay, but I only got one more slide after this, so we can just leave it, and I'll just tell Naomi to flip it. But the, this key idea is there's this idea, there's this hope and this ultimate reality he says, what you know is true, the spirit in you, that very thing that shined in your light is the guarantee that that world is real, that it's true, that he's going to take you to be with him. And this is this broken world, this broken clay pot, which will be disposed, and we will take on a new body, which works right. And, we, and there's a part of us which says, I just want to be out of this thing. I don't want this strain anymore. I don't like this clayness. I don't like, I don't like, you know, I, I just want to work properly now. I'm sick of the body that's breaking down. You know, I just want to, I want to be there. And he says, and the time will come when that will be. Because, but for now, we are in this world. And we want to serve him in this world with all we have. We want to manifest the life of Jesus in this world. Thank you. And that's, uh, you know, at, you know, his kingdom come, your, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are called here to reveal the kingdom of God, to make him known in this world while we know that world <laughs> is the one we're longing for, while we wait here. And also... Furthermore, it's not just that God wants to show himself and draw people to himself. He also says that the sufferings and the hardship in this world in a crazy way actually transforms and changes us. That somehow, us personally, this is the training ground for heaven. If you think about it, if you're going to, you know, people talk about heaven, hell, but if, if, if the nature of heaven is that you are in, um, you know, eternal state of worship and praise and the presence of God and in service to God, if you don't want to do that now, why would you want to do it then? You know, in some ways, that needs to be, it, it becomes the fulfillment of all our hungers and all our desires. And actually, in our sufferings and in our difficulties, God's weaning the, our idols away from us, weaning the things we don't love, making him the sole thing that is of value and of worth. So we are being changed by this. Ultimately, longing for that thing. So there's a sense in which we live in these two worlds, Right? We live here in this world and the one up there. And this is really what he's talking about then. He says, you know, because of this reality, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away, yet inwardly, 
we are being renewed day by day for these light and momentary troubles or afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You like how Paul light and momentary afflictions. You got you remember what one of the whole contexts of this letter is Paul's being accused. You're saying, oh, you're this great apostle, but you are being arrested, you're being beaten, you're being thrown places. He is running around being persecuted by, you know, by the Romans, by the Jewish, everybody. And he goes, oh, this is the, you're the chosen vessel of God. Why is this happening to you? And he's going and explaining that now. And he goes, these light and momentary afflictions. Listen, they're anything but light. <laughs> And momentary is what? In relative to eternity. You say in comparison to what's happening eternally, this light stuff is producing an eternal. And you can just, right, it's, it's, it's light, it's, it's momentary versus eternal. It's light versus weighty. Glory that's happening in me being transformed. It goes, therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is unseen, but on what is unseen. I mean, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He's saying, so there's this way in which we see the eternal happening. And that is what we're looking at. What is God doing? What is that ultimate reality? Not down here where the light and momentary temporal stuff is happening that is passing. So we're living in these two worlds simultaneously. And that's why I said, like, this is essentially, uh, right, we're in the subway, aren't we? We're in the, you know, we're, uh, you know, he's playing a concert music. You know, he's bringing this from this other world into this thing right there. He is playing this concert in the midst of this broken world. And says, that's what essentially we do. You know, we're, we're living for that world. Like, do you remember, like, for an example, remember when uh, Beth Kidd was here talking from Place of Promise? And she, you know, she's, there's somebody, you know, right on her street, you know, homeless and you know drugs and she goes and she takes them into her home she feeds them she cares for them what is she doing she's living for the eternal right she's having a vision of the kingdom in the midst of her temporal world because just living for the temporal world what that action makes no sense at all does it why would you you know endanger your family why would you spend money why would you try to do this it makes no sense at all but when she's living up for the unseen world, then it makes all the sense in the world to go care for her. And you may say, well, gosh, that all seems idealistic and very spiritual. I'm not that spiritual, right? Actually, it's a human thing to do. Do you realize that God has given us that ability to see beyond our temporal circumstances almost in everything you do? You know, um, does anyone have kids? Ever had a kid before? Yeah, there's a lot of this going on. You change a diaper, you better have eternity in your mind, you know? Or, you know, you, or you have their future, you have who they're going to become, you accept the burden and the difficulty of this situation because you see that other thing. When you train for anything, right, you have this higher view in it. They've actually, even the most secular person has realized that people can't live without purpose. It's this way God has made us. That if we get wrapped into, totally into this moment of where we're living, you know what happens to people? And they think there's nothing else? Massive despair. Right? Well, there's another thing that people do when they're not actually radically present, which is this is what this is calling us for. We actually slip away. We're kind of like almost like we get too, it's too difficult. So we retract. Or we get, you know, anxiousness and worry. You know what they say, anxious and worriedness, right? It's, it's all imagined futures. You actually leave the present moment where you are and you go into imagined futures, usually where there isn't God, 
which results in anxiousness and worry and all that kind of stuff, and you leave it. This calls us to do neither, right? We're to be radically present in this context we're in, but playing that symphony <laughs> while we're doing it. You know, so we are, like right now, I'm speaking to all of you in this place with these words, with these things, but I'm actually also speaking in the presence of God. Speaking words of eternal value and purpose that far outweighs the smallness of this situation. And all of our lives are like that. There is no moment when you are not in the presence of God, when you're not in the kingdom of God. That every one of your conversations, every word, everything you do at the workplace is done in these simultaneous two worlds. Everything. And when, when your body is breaking down and you're, you're, you're really, my tent is falling apart, I am also living in that other world until such time that I have this new one. We often think, why doesn't, you know, when people say, well, why doesn't God heal? Well, many times he does when he wants to show off, but you don't realize that death is actually a healing. You know, death is like, oh, I'm dead, I'm done with this thing and into my real body. You know, the one I was made to have. At which moment God will have that. But we live in both these moments. We, we, we are to be people here who play the most amazing concert. Just, and, and, we have, and we have instruments of incredible value, right? You think of the scriptures, right? The word of God, of the creator of the universe before us, which we read and proclaim. It's, it's like that $3.5 million Stradivarius, but which no one noticed. And they walked by like it was nothing. They had, you know, perhaps, the, like I said, the greatest instrument ever fashioned by a person before them, and they walked right by it. And it's tempting to be like Joshua Bell in that moment, is that you stop thinking that you are a concert pianist in some way, or a violinist. You stop thinking the beauty of what you're playing, the beauty of all this, and you're just caught in this present moment, and you're just like, you are that thing in the hat, and look at this, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no better than this little thing right here. Do you feel that temptation? You live in this world and you can almost forget the world you're playing for and who you are and what you're doing. And the call is to sit right, get to be present in that and never forget who you are in that place. Never forget that you are playing before the king, that you are playing, a con you know, you are fashioning that, uh, this uh, symphony for God in your life in the midst of a moment in a world that often never sees it, never recognizes it, won't clap when you're done, but that's not who you're playing for. The temptation is to play for them. In some ways, being very present, there's actually something beautiful about him, you know, um, appreciating the dollar rather than the coins. You know, in, in the midst of this world, you're like, oh, you know, he found this, he saw some beauty in what was happening, or saw something, and you're happy for it, but not desperate, if that makes sense. You, know, you don't need it, but you're glad for them for it. We're to live in this world. We pray, we worship. We're living in eternity in this moment. And so, when hardship happens, when you are sitting in the midst of that subway of life, and it feels like, man, everyone is ignoring me. No one sees this. This thing of great value, no one even acknowledges the value. It's tired, it's hot, I'm ignored. In those moments, what does it say? Do not lose heart. Even though inwardly, or even though outwardly you're wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. And these light momentary afflictions, they're producing in you an eternal weight of glory 
which far outweighs them all. So we don't look at what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we um, give you thanks and praise. And we acknowledge, Lord, that um, we often take our eyes off what is unseen. Lord, we confess that you have shined your light into our hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But so many times we are not looking at the face of Christ. We're looking at the world around us. And even as it pulls us down. And Lord, I pray, Father, that we will feel your presence in every moment of our lives, that we will see that we are, that every conversation we have, every embrace we make, even in the midst of our illness and struggle, in these jars of clay, Lord, that you are present, that you see it, and that none of it's waste. Oh, Lord, let us live in a, amazing lives for you. Let us play the instruments you've given us to the greatest beauty in the midst of this world, Lord, that you might receive glory in all things. We bless you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name.